0: What's up everybody? I'm Nick. As always, I'm here with Ryan and Mark. And we are
1: Bible dingers. dingers.
0: We got a special episode today. Are you guys excited about this episode? I'm so excited. Excited? Yeah. Are you excited, Mark A? Oh yeah. We got a special guest today, and his name is Jay Warner Wallace. Jay Warns. Jay Warner. Congratulations, Jay Warner Wallace. Congratulations, you made it on our show for being you. (laughs) So, Jay Warner Wallace has been speaking publicly for over 15 years, from small seminars to keynote appearances at major national events. His work as a detective has been highlighted on local and national television programs like Dateline, Fox News, and Court TV. In fact, He's been on Dateline more than any other detective in the country. I love Dateline. Me too. He also hosts a weekly television show on NRB TV and appeared on God's Not Dead 2. Let me tell you a little bit more about this guy. (laughs) Okay. So he served as a police officer and detective for over 25 years. He's worked as a patrol officer, served on a street-level narcotics unit and SWAT. He worked the gang detail and a career criminal surveillance team and eventually became a robbery homicide detective. He has been investigating cold case homicides exclusively for many years. Jim has earned a bachelor of fine arts degree in design from California State University, followed by a master's degree in architecture from UCLA. He was committed atheist until the age of 35, but once he became a Christian, he quickly became interested in Christian theology. He entered seminary at Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary and eventually earned a master's degree in theological studies. Jim is presently an adjunct professor of apologetics at Biola University. He's also the author of one of my favorite books and a very well-known book called Cold Case Christianity, and he also wrote God's Crime Scene, Forensic Faith. So, without uh,
2: further ado, we are going to jump right over to the call. I hope you guys enjoy it.
1: Bible diggers. And uh,
2: yeah, thank you again for being on.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting to try to grow a, an audience for a podcast, right? But I think that okay. a lot of young people are, are using – our I, I, I'm at Summit Worldview Conference in, in Colorado, I am always I always ask the students there, you know, how many of you listen to podcasts? And if you do, which ones are you listening to? And, and I'm just uh, amazed at – because I kind of thought for, for a season there that people might be moving away from podcasts, right? Uh, but no, I think that actually a lot of people are listening to podcasts. So
2: Yeah, for sure. Yep. I think so. Didn't you um? Didn't you just recently write a book with Sean McDowell? Am I getting that yep. right? About yes, the, right, the next yeah,
1: generation? Gen Gen Z, yeah, nice. A lot of that, a lot of that came from our our work uh, on uh, you know on uh, on that uh, in that ministry at Worldview uh, Summit, Worldview Ministries. So you learned some stuff, and of course, he's been a high school teacher for years, and I was a youth pastor before that. So That's awesome. anyway.
0: So we just finished going through the historical books of the Old Testament. Now, how do we know that the Bible is actually a historical book?
1: Well, okay, so, so if you look at what—and this is my first approach to this—is I didn't think, as I was um, not raised in the Church and didn't really have whatever the Church proposes as far as a view towards Scripture, I just had this view that there was this ancient text that Christians use, but I didn't trust that it was reliable— and and what we say when we use the word historical, I think what we mean is, does it accurately describe events in either a chronological order or otherwise as they actually occurred in history? And that's really the question, especially for me uh, examining the Gospels. I needed to know, you know, why should I um, embrace what the New Testament, for example, says about you? Forget about the Old Testament for a second. Why should I embrace even anything that's uh, newer in the New Testament? as reliable, for me, it had to be historically reliable. So let me give you an example of this. If if you're working a cold case, you often are opening, I, that's what I do for a living, right? I work I work cold case homicides. Well, these are events that are locked in history. Even though the history may be relatively recent, it may not be as well recorded as like national historical events, like you see in scripture, or miraculous historical events. I get a report, and then the question I have to ask is, Is that report from 1972 historically accurate? So some witness was interviewed, but I don't have access to that witness anymore. That person died, and now I don't have access to the detective who wrote it because that guy's gone too. So now I've got to look at this document and decide, did the chronicler do a good job uh, capturing everything the witness said? And two, was the witness reliable to begin with? So this is what we're doing in the Gospels. We're looking—and in the Old Testament, too. We're looking at this document and asking ourselves, can we test it in some way? Okay, how would we test it? What's the how do we test eyewitnesses to begin with? What first of all, should we even embrace it as an eyewitness account? Or maybe it's not an eyewitness account. Maybe it's some spiritualized proverbial collection of statements that really can't be tested against history, like the the, the writings of, of Baha'u'llah or or of Buddha. Is that the kind of thing this is? Or are there places in the, in the manuscript where people actually want us to believe these events happened as as recorded. So so I think that was part of my approach was to say, okay, first of all, do we have a good reason to believe that, that anyone who wrote this intended it to be understood as history to begin with, as, you know, a, a chronicle of events, mm. uh, as either an eyewitness account or as something that's been passed down accurately to us from the eyewitnesses. So that's the, the first, I think, approach we have to take.
0: Uh, Jay, have you heard of
2: uh, what's called Vios? It's like an old style of writing that they say the New Testament
1: was written in. Well, okay, so that there's the question. Yes, so the question is, well, go ahead. I'll let you finish your finish your question on that. But yeah, I think part of it is we have to ask ourselves: Do we really have an, an accurate idea? Because lots of things are proposed, and I, t- to be honest, a lot of things are proposed, not necessarily on the basis of good. Uh, um, manuscript or good uh, physical evidence, but because uh, somebody uh, has an idea that they are kind of testing, especially a lot of critical textual analysis uh, anyway, so so a lot of it. But go ahead.
2: Yeah, so h- how do we know for sure that the the Bible is not just bios, but it really is um, reliable eyewitness testimony?
1: Well, I start with the uh, the New Testament because the only no reason why I started with this is because I wasn't first... Um, introduced to the Bible through a synagogue. I was first introduced to scripture through a Christian church. Hmm. So uh, my wife introduced that to me. She was interested in going to church, although she had, we didn't own a Bible. We were been together for about 18 years. Neither one of us owned a Bible. <laughs> so, so we walked into that evangelical church, really, for the first time as newbies. And just kind of listening to the pastor talk about—and I, I was, had no intention of pick, taking it seriously. My, my dad goes to church as an atheist, and I'm very happy to go with my wife if she wants to go. I don't have to believe it in order to serve her and and want to, you know, do this for our marriage. No problem. But but that's how I was introduced to Scripture. So the first thing I tested was the New Testament, because I happened to be in a setting where the pastor made this outrageous claim that uh, jesus was um, a really smart man the Mm -hmm. smartest man who had ever lived and so i just wanted to see what this guy had to say Mm -hmm. now what's interesting is is as i read through the scriptures the new testament it does appear just the context of what's being described in the canonical gospels and in the book of acts appear to be A description of historical events right i mean they they seem to follow a a narrative over the course of about three years of ministry and then maybe Mm -hmm. another several years in the book of acts and and then there are people like peter who write in first peter and john who writes in his letters who are trying to tell us or make a claim that they actually saw this with their own eyes they touched this they aren't creating clever stories well, that, you know, even the end of the book of John it makes it sound like, hey, there's a lot more he could have written about what Jesus did. So these are—it seems to me on their face, at least, they are claiming these are accurate um, depictions of what really happened in history involving Jesus of Nazareth. So all I had left to do is to test it, and we have a, a process in place to test eyewitness accounts. And I just simply use the jury instructions that we offer every set of jurors when they're listening to an eyewitness on the stand. And they're thinking, really, did this really happened. Well, there's 13 questions that we offer um, jurors to consider when they are listening to eyewitnesses. They boil down into four large categories, and those are the categories that I examined as I was reading through the, the Gospels. So, uh, so the question then is, do we have any reason to believe they were written early enough to really have been written by eyewitnesses or to have been written in front of those who would know if they were telling a lie? Two, can they be corroborated in some way? And corroborative evidence is, is varied. There's a ton of different ways to corroborate a claim. Um, and three, have they been honest and accurate over time or have they been changing their story uh, over the years? And then four, did they possess a bias or some bad motive that would cause them to lie to us? So those are the four things we examine in criminal trials, and I think you can actually apply that to any ancient text about an event in the allegedly ancient past. So you can apply that process to the Book of Mormon. You can apply that process to any claim like this. You can assess. Now, this is not typically – well, it kind of is, is, has some parallels to how historians might look. But in the end, you know, we're not going to—even though we're examining an event from 35 years ago in front of a jury, and it is really uh, akin to studying history, a historical event, uh, to be honest, jurors want to know in a more of a detective way, is this reliable than they are? They're not as interested in historians as they are in investigators, so so that's the approach I always take in front of a jury. Mm -hmm. That's great, yeah.
2: So I was wondering, I know there's a lot of like metaphoric language in the Bible, and a lot of people say that there's a lot of things stolen from myths, even in the Bible. Uh, you, you know, there's popular myths such as Mithras or Horus that a lot of people say that the mm-hmm. Bible stole from. Uh, can we really take the Bible as something that historically happened when it seems like it kind of ripped off a lot of these other myths?
1: Well, let's just, let's just stay with the idea of the mythologies, first of all. So so I'm writing another book right now, and I'm kind of looking at more—and I've written a lot online about those other myths and are they similar, right? How similar are they? Um, and so I think that, first of all, uh, if you really examine—and there's a bunch more than just Mithras and Osiris and Horus and Adonis and Attis and Dion- uh, Dionysus, and I mean, you can go on and on, right? There's a ton of these uh, from all over— The known world at the time, when I say the known world, I'm talking about that fertile crescent, you know, all of Persia, Egypt, all the way to China, India, all the way north to the um, er, er, regions above uh, Italy. So when the Roman Empire kind of takes over, they got a ton of people assimilated from all kinds of different cultures. And every one of these cultures had its own gods. And so people have tried to say, well, there's some similarities between some of these gods and Jesus of Nazareth. Well, first of all, no, duh. I mean, of course there are, uh, and I think this is something that is in the heart of man. We are wired in such a way that we imagine and we 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 think about uh, God. All all cultures do this. They 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 search for meaning. They think about uh, and they imagine. Uh, and uh, unsurprisingly, that if there is a God, it's going to possess certain attributes. It's probably going to appear miraculously. It's probably going to have uh, an unbelievable power. It's probably going to be able to do certain things. Now, if you look at the similarities between other claims about God and Jesus, you will find that they are nowhere near as detailed and as similar as the skeptics would paint them out to be. So, first of all, examine the claims. If you say that Mithras is like Jesus because he was born in a a manger or born in a cave, attended by shepherds, announced by a star, who worked miracles, who died on a cross, who rose from the grave, these things are not true, okay? Mm -hmm. So all of the similarities you typically see listed about all the prior myths, they aren't true in detail. But as I've examined now probably 30 of these, just to prepare for the next book, I, I will tell you that there are similarities, and there's a reason why they are similar. They are similar because we are wired as humans to seek our Creator, and we imagine certain attributes in common, and then Paul shows up on Mars Hill, and he says to everybody, you know, oh. I notice you people worship a lot of gods. As a matter of fact, you've even got a god over here that's called a temple, an icon, an idol here, a monument to the unknown god. Hmm. Uh, and it turns out you've all captured something that's accurate about God, but not not entirely, because now we know who that God is because he's been revealed to us by the resurrection of Jesus. And so what he says is, no kidding, you have similar ideas about God, but none of these capture the truth. And these are exactly what I would expect you to think about God if you're thinking about God at all. Hmm. So, so in the end, yes, and this is why, and by the way, It's not just that we have certain expectations of God, it's that when God appeared, he met our expectations so we would know he was there, Hmm. and he meets our expectations. Now, granted— uh, all of the things you will hear, whatever similarities you hear, they really aren't as similar as you think, but broadly they are. I mean, so so if you say, well, you know, he's a miracle worker, yeah, but he doesn't work the same kinds of miracles of Jesus of Nazareth, right? I mean, and if you say, well, he had an unusual birth, yeah, but it's not really the same as Jesus of Nazareth. Or if you say he was able to conquer death, well, it's not really a resurrection. So, but the point is, we would assume these, we would, be, we would um, seek these kinds of things. We would imagine, I'll give it to you this way there's a book called the um uh, called futility and it's a book uh, about a ship that was a huge ocean liner that in the early uh, 20th century on its maiden voyage struck an iceberg and sunk the details of this ship are strikingly similar to the titanic the name of the ship even starts t-i-t-a-n hmm. but it's not titanic it's the titan and this ship, this story about the sinking ship on its maiden voyage was written 12 years before the Titanic was built. Hmm. How is it that somebody could guess that accurately? If you, a thousand years from now, found this book, you would probably deny that the Titanic ever existed or sank because it's awfully similar to the book. Now, of course, as you dig through the details of that book, you will see there are many things that are no way at all similar. But it shouldn't surprise you that people who were imagining at the beginning of an age when we're building these huge ocean liners and we're sailing them across the North Atlantic, there's probably a danger that one of these is going to hit an iceberg at some point. Hmm. And we imagine this, we write a book about it, because, and then, of course, when it happens, you're not surprised. So we can imagine things about God. Paul saw that on Mars Hill, and then it turns out when God shows up, he will meet some of our expectations and then blow our minds in other areas.
0: That's crazy. Wow. The what f- an incredible <laughs> answer. Looking forward to that book. <laughs> I, can't well, wait, I hope so. I can't wait to ask you another question, honestly. <laughs> okay, so a follow-up question is, hasn't archaeology disproven the historical claims of the Bible, such as a global flood and the Exodus? I'm intrigued to see what you feel about that.
1: Well, okay, a couple of things that I have to when I stop and think about these uh, questions, um, uh, part of it, and this is the danger of it, when we instruct a jury, we don't just give them the facts, but we help them to think about how they should uh, interpret the facts about kind of logical reasoning. So uh, I, a couple of problems I see with using um, – like how would we ever make a case for a global flood that couldn't also be interpreted as a case for maybe a, reg- a number of regional floods that might have the appearance of being global but people could argue are just regional. I mean I think this is the problem is that I don't know what we'd be looking for. So, so let me give you an example of this. Let's say we have a murder and we get to the crime scene and there's lots of evidence in the crime scene. But now what we're looking for is the evidence of the motive. Well, OK, um, there's evidence of the crime as it was committed in this crime scene, but you may probably not going to you're probably not going to have evidence of what drove the murder. That's going to be found someplace else. If you're if you're saying I'm going to limit myself to looking at the crime scene for evidence of motive. Well, you're probably gonna, or how did he get in? Uh, How did he get to know this person? How did he get close to this? There may not be any evidence of that in the actual crime scene. You got to look someplace else for that. Hmm. So what I think happens sometimes is we get stuck thinking, okay, so we've got the exodus of the Jews from Egypt. So what are we expecting to find in that scene? Well, part of the problem is that um, all the evidence we have of Egypt, I mean, if you're really looking for a, a record of a Jewish slave population, I got to ask myself, honestly, what are you expecting to find? OK, first of all, the Egyptians are probably um, not going to run around and talk a lot about how they were, how that happened to them. Right. This is mm-hmm. not a point of, 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 a, of a victory. And most of the time in ancient cultures, what you see are documentations of victories. But even then, all we have, uh, uh, most of what we have in Egypt at the time, some is on papyrus, but it's usually funeral papyrus. Uh, most of what we have is, is is written in stone, and and those stone um, uh, environments are not usually used to list these kinds of things. Now, the kinds of records you might have that listed slaves or listed uh, some kind of uh, city documents that would list the movement of peoples, those are not going to be on the stone uh, surfaces. Those are going to be on materials that are going to decompose. And so I just don't know what we expected to find that would record this thing to our satisfaction. Right. So, again, we're kind of looking in the crime scene and saying, hey, is there any evidence of motive? And then we're like, oh, I can't find evidence of motive. Doesn't mean there wasn't a motive. You just can't find it in that scene. You shouldn't expect to find it there. Also, if, if I said to you, do we have any evidence of the tabernacle? Forget about any other claims. Well, well, no, the tabernacle was this temporary thing that was put up and set down. It's like we have evidence of the temple. Once they got to building in stone, you know, once you get to building cities, we have evidence. But if, if you're nomadic— and you are using – you're on the move constantly. What exactly did you think we were going to survive thousands of years that we would be able to look at? Hmm. And so what you're looking for is, number one, evidence of a, of a great defeat over the, the – the, and the writer of this, uh, doc, this, uh, this uh, event is probably not going to mention that, especially on the stone monuments we still have. That's number one. Number two, you're, you're looking for evidence of this nomadic tribe and their movement. I just don't know what you're expecting to find. And so the problem I have is that, okay, I don't know that – now, now, is there evidence anyway? Yeah, actually, I think the best right now available quick, lay-level, accessible case for the exodus is probably still the movie Patterns of Evidence, Exodus – which is out there. Uh, you, can get, you can watch it for like four bucks on Amazon. It's, it's worth watching. And what they do is they look at the old assumption that the, that the exodus occurred around 1250. They show that if we shift it back to 1450, they actually find a number of things that you could build a case with. Mm-hmm. And I think that's worth watching. Uh, but again, remember, uh, I'll give you another example of this. Uh, the limits of archaeology are so dramatic and we take them for granted. Um, it's been called a discipline of fractions, right? Only a fraction of the sites have been found. Only a fraction of the found sites are, are, are even involved biblical events. Only a fraction of those have been excavated. And, and so you're not going to find, for example, um, every single city, every single event mentioned in the New and Old Testament. You will not find an archaeological find Uh, archaeological site that will confirm those. You'll find a lot, but you won't find every single event confirmed by archaeology. On the other hand, if you were to look for the archaeological support for the Book of Mormon in the North American continent, a thousand years of history recorded in the Book of Mormon, you won't find a single archaeological site, a single archaeological uh, discovery Hmm. that supports any of it. So I don't expect to find much. I expect to find something, But it'll end up being a more scant kind of cumulative circumstantial case, and that's what I think is great about Patterns of Evidence is it kind of gives you what is the cumulative case, and and it's a number of things uh, that are probably best described in that video.
0: Hmm.
2: So I was going to ask, since we are going with the answer that the Bible is historically accurate, that archaeology does support it, um, and that... It's not it's not a myth or anything like that. Are we also supposed to believe that miracles that happen in the Bible are actual history because they do seem a little unbelievable?
1: Well, okay, so let's uh, you're absolutely right. That was the sticking point for me personally. Let's just do a little thought experiment. Let's let's remove all of the miracles from the New Testament. Just take them out. So all we have left is the Jesus who who travels and who preached sermons and who ultimately was crucified but no resurrection, okay? Then let's go back to the Old Testament and take out all of the miracles. We have uh, uh, Jews who uh, lived and were recorded accurately in Genesis and in Exodus, but there was no miraculous event, no plagues, no miraculous event that caused their uh, migration, okay? Mm -hmm. If we took out all of the miracles in the Old and New Testament, do you really think that people would be so adamant about denying their historicity? Do you not think there's enough uh, do- document evidence, archaeological evidence, and um, transmission is, of the documents as, is, uh, is clean enough that people would, would really de- – I mean, is there any other set of ancient claims that has been as well documented as these? What stops people in their tracks is the supernatural stuff. Yeah, right. So so uh, so if you just took all that stuff out, everyone's going to go, yep, oh, Jesus of Nazareth lived, no problem. No, There's no skeptic on the planet mm-hmm. unless you put the miracles in. Now, once you put the miracles in, everyone's like, eh, hey, I don't know, you can't trust this as a story. So what does it come down to? It doesn't come down to, really, it seems to me, whether or not the documents are historically reliable. It comes down to our presuppositions about miracles. Do we think there could ever, ever be this kind of miracle in the course of history. And, and so uh, that was a hurdle I thought was just too big to jump. That was something that I would have said, no, as a matter of fact, this is why precisely why I don't trust uh, these documents. Now, what, so I wrote a book called God's Crime Scene where I, I, I kind of outlined, I didn't write it this way. I didn't say it this way, but, but, but really for me, that was the, the, the stuff I had to do in order to to jump over the, my my um, my bias against the supernatural because, honestly, I was so biased against the supernatural that I got to a point where I told Susie, my wife, you know, I think these are, are historically reliable documents, but except for the miracles. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm kind of like, I, I got to redact out the miracles, right? Because that's that's those don't happen. Mm. But, but, but at the same time, though, I was somebody who would have said that I believed... That the entire universe leapt into existence from nothing, big bang cosmology. You know, even mm-hmm. now that is still the standard cosmological model. In other words, it is still the most accepted model of the universe um, held by astrophysicists and cosmologists. So it, even though there are all these other, you know, um, uh, quantum theories and, and multiverse theories and, and, and still some, some cyclical theories, whatever the theories are, the most uh, accepted theory is Big Bang cosmology. Okay, so that means, according to the science of Big Bang cosmology, all space, time, and matter comes into existence at a point in the distant past. In other words, the universe, made up of space, time, and matter, acted upon by physics and chemistry does not come into existence until the beginning of this, that means it's not like you have some spatial void and then the universe appears. No, space is something. It's not nothing. This theory says that all space, time, and matter came into existence, not from space, but from nothing. Nothing. What Aristotle says rocks think about. Nothing. So so that means that I'm looking for a cause, even if it's an impersonal cause, But it can't be spatial, it can't be temporal, it can't be material, because those things don't exist until the universe comes into existence. So here I was saying, okay, I deny miraculous things, but how do you explain the beginning of the universe from a purely naturalistic perspective when all nature I have to work with is space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry, yet the cause I'm looking for cannot be made up of space, time, matter, physics, or chemistry? Hmm. So I'm stuck now. And if that first cause of the universe outside of space, time, and matter happens to be personal, well, then I'm—the biggest miracle mentioned in all the Scripture is Genesis 1, right? It's not, the, it's not the parting of the Red Sea. It's not the plagues in the Old Testament. It's nothing in the Old Testament. It's not the resurrection of Jesus. It's nothing in the New Testament. The, the, the most amazing miracle of all is creating everything from nothing— And if you can do that, why wouldn't you be able to walk on water? Whatever being could do that, doesn't that open up at least the reasonable inference that that kind of being could account for all the other – in other words, I had to start to carve away at my presuppositions against the miraculous. And then once I did that, I realized, okay, so other things are open. Now the only question is do I think that these accounts that describe these other things are historically accurate – and by the way, this is going to help people to assess the Old Testament. Here's why. You shouldn't trust what J. Warner Wallace thinks about the Old Testament. I'm not a scholar on the Old Testament, and, and you guys aren't either. But if Jesus really did rise from the grave, he has authority that nobody else has, right? I mean, s- silly me, if you rise out of the grave, I have a tendency to listen to you and pay attention to you. <laughs> right? yeah, you're, in a diff- you're in a different category. If this guy Says that the Old Testament is historically reliable, and he quotes as if Adam and Eve were real people, as if uh, you know Moses and Noah and 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 Jonah and all these people were real people. Well, then I'm in. Hmm. In other words, if you can if you can check and and validate that Jesus rose from the grave, that is the most reasonable inference from evidence. Well, then you not only have confirmed the New Testament for yourself, but you get the Old Testament thrown in. Because he's going to ath- authenticate and validate the Old Testament, so I, I think there's a way of kind of looking at it and doing the work to dis- to discover if Jesus really was who he said he was, will help uh, solve and answer other questions as well. Wow,
0: awesome!
2: That is crazy. You know, it seems like so easy, almost so easy, with all the arguments for the creation of the universe and stuff like that. Where it's so easily accepted, but then little stuff like the walking on the water.
0: Right or
1: virgin you know, birth? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it yeah, just Seems like well, and you know you see this too, right? Like like you see like um, uh, Anthony Flew, right? Who d- died several years ago, who was probably one of the most foremost, best known atheists of the twentieth century. Right. This guy became a deist at the end. Isn't that interesting? Right. You mm-hmm. might say he's a theist, but really more of a deist because for him the information in DNA could only be explained by mind, and he got to that point in his eighties where he said, "Okay, that's the." That's the, the tipping point for me. But he had a harder time with the, with the notion that the God who could create everything from nothing— would also be involved on in a daily basis in your life. Hmm. Like, like it's one thing to say that this God uh, creates everything, then he kind of steps away, and that explains the origin of the universe, that explains the origin of life in the universe, the appearance of design and biology, the appearance of fine-tuning in the universe, the existence of objective, transcendent moral truths, the existence of immaterial things like mind, and the idea of having kind of a free agency, if, if, if atheism is true, you're in a deterministic, physicalistic universe that doesn't even allow you for free agency. All of that could be explained if there's a God who's the the, the kicker, the starter.
0: Amen.
1: But if you're going to make another move and say that God is actually involved and cares about my behavior, ooh, that gets uncomfortable. Right. Yeah. yeah and yeah. so I think that's why it's harder to take a step away from how He might be good for the first move, but I don't think He's involved after that. I don't think He cares after that. Yeah. And so that's why for someone like Antony Flew, he gets he gets as far as deism, but he doesn't get any further. This idea that God begins it and then kind of releases it to do what it does but i think we've got good reason to believe i mean i don't think i I, my son is an an anesthesiologist and, and he's a biochemist before that and we we understand that your body retains heat and we can tell you the what's of what the chemical reactions are, what the biological interactions are, but we can never answer the why questions. Mm. You know, why does it happen this way? And science has a much harder time answering why questions. You can just describe things as they are. Mm. And I think that the God who's interacting in his own creation right now really is the answer to many of the why questions that doctors and biologists asked about what is why is it you are still you you're still your body temperature is staying this warm you still are breathing your heart's still beating we can get to descriptions of what the mechanisms are but we always stop short of the why and the why i think is answered uh, pretty pretty well by the existence of a of a a, a a creator being who's not just the creator but the sustainer of his universe and i think. Uh, that is, at least for me, still on the table, reasonably from the evidence, and so I think that's that's why there's there's lots of good reasons to believe to move beyond deism, I think, and mm. to a, some form of, of theism.
2: That's
0: awesome. That's awesome. I, I ha- actually have a question for you because I really admire the way you put things. I think it's so easy to understand, and you make things so practical. But um, I have a lot of atheist friends, um, a ton of them, actually. If you were to end this episode and just send them one message or, or one clear statement, what would you say to them?
1: Well, I mean, I think I, I've i been in that position where I was really a very adamant atheist for a lot of years. And when you tell that to people, I don't mean to say that to say, well, hey, I'm if I can do this, you can do this. But at least I think I understand uh, the things that drive us. And I absolutely am patient with, I'm very patient with and very understanding of anyone who, who, who hesitates to, to, to step out on a claim that is as bold as this one, right? But, but in the end, I would ask people to think about why it is all of us seek the things that the Christian worldview seems to answer. It's not as, look, all of us are trying to live as long as we can. We have a heart and a desire to seek eternity. We, we we seek meaning. We can try to create our own meaning, but in the end we know that we that there's we wish there was something beyond our own ideas about what meaning is. So we'd like to, you know, we seek this transcendent meaning, which is really not available unless you embrace a theistic worldview, right? I mean, we we seek and, and find value in certain things, but we don't think they're just a matter of our personal opinion. We think that some things are inherently objectively and transcendently valuable. Even if a culture rejects those things, we think these things are valuable. We have desires of the heart. And I don't think those are by accident. As C.S. Lewis said, if you have a desire to eat, the desire for you to eat, your hunger demonstrates the existence of food. Mm. It, it, satisfy the hunger. I think we often have desires that, and, and I you say this especially early on when I was younger, I wasn't as in tune with my own desires. You know, as you get older, you start to have a more eternal perspective on the meaning of life, of what's important in life. As you parent your own kids, you have a better understanding of what is important and what sacrifice, a better understanding of what the heart of a father would be like. So I think I would say, first of all, is just to, to be open uh, to this notion and also to resist the impulse to associate the christian worldview with any christian you might know today Hmm. because that's something we often do in other words if i have to join that group to believe this thing i'm out because i don't like that group now i get that I, i totally get that but resist that temptation imagine you're it's just you In a cabin, stranded for the rest of your life, and in that nightstand next to your bed there happens to be a Bible. And you open that thing up not knowing anyone, and you're never going to know anyone, who embraces the ideas in that Scripture. The only question then becomes, is what it's saying true? Does it resonate with your own desires? Does it match what actually happened in history if you can test it in some way? And, 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 and then, then assess it that way. I can't tell you how many people assess a claim based on, especially in a social media world we're living in right now, based on what group your acceptance of that claim is eventually going to land you in, okay? Especially right now when we seem to be so polarized and most people identify Christians today in America with one political party or the other, right? We already know where that goes. Mm-hmm. And, and so if I don't like that political party or the leader of that political party, for whatever reason, I'm now going to reject the claims of the Bible? Really? Imagine you're in the cabin by yourself. There's, you're, not gonna, you're stuck there forever. You're not going to have – now if you assessed it, let's, let's, let's assess it as though it has no connection to the people you like or don't like. Let's assess it and see is it actually true? And again, I think that what's great about Scripture is that it matches reality. It it does. I can tell you as a detective, so much of the behavior that I saw in the people I took to jail made so much more sense once I had an understanding of Christian anthropology as described in the Scriptures then I could go, oh, well, of course he's going to do it this way. Of course he's going to say that. Of course this guy is capable of this and that. I mean, these are things that made sense once I had a view of humans that came from Scripture rather than even my own experience of humans. So so I, that's what I would probably say. It's a long answer, but I think that, that if you're going to be fair, you have to at least um, put down your, your bias long enough to assess the text.
0: That's great. awesome. Thank you.
2: Well, I know I love Cold Case Christianity. Nick, you read it too, right? Absolutely. It was an awesome book. It was really practical. Um, we loved it. So how else can, can people find out more about you or get some of your resources?
1: Well, I've got a website at uh, coldcasechristianity.com, and we post there five days a week. There's always a bunch of new material there, Uh, so I hope that stuff is helpful. We've written seven books now, so if you look at those uh, books on the book page, that's fine. But really what we're trying to do on the website is to provide you with enough content that you would uh, be able to to really dive deeply even without having to buy anything right i mean that's really the goal here but this we're in an internet uh, age right now where free content's available we want to be a distributor of free content so we also have kids programs at Casemakersacademy.com. so you can look up those two websites will kind of lead you to all the resources we offer
2: that's awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show,
1: Mr. Wallace. We really appreciate it. Thank yeah. you. Hey, hey, th- thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Let's do it again. Absolutely. <laughs> sure. Can't yeah. wait
0: to have you on the show again. Honestly, I hope you become a long-term friend of the show.
1: Well, i already am a long-term friend of the show. <laughs> there you go. So, so, <laughs> so, so we're good. Right. Yeah, for sure. All right, thanks, guys. All right, thanks. You got so it.
0: Everything I wanna be, and when life, I feel like it's never right now. on Break promises hurt myself, yeah I be trying to do my own thing yeah. I be acting like I'm okay But I'm always ending up with the same disappointment